0: All right. Good morning. My name is Brian. I am one of the pastors of the church. It is good to be with you uh, this morning. If you have your Bibles, please join me in Exodus chapter thirty-three. Exodus chapter 33. We will be in Exodus 33 and 34 uh, this morning as we continue our study of the book of Exodus. Um, The title for the sermon this morning, as you see on the screen, is Disastrous News... Good news, disastrous news, good news. Not that the same news is uh, disastrous and good, but instead that the disastrous news paves the way for the good news. Uh, That word, though, disaster, is a a bit of a tricky word. One of the problems in our current use of the English language, I believe, is that we, uh, we exaggerate like all the time, right? like all the time, and so we will call things a disaster that really are not a disaster, right, and so uh, perhaps a parent will go into a child's room and says, man, I just went into little Johnny's room, it is a disaster, I don't know that that qualifies as a disaster. Or maybe a child, a school-aged child, will say, oh, my mom came to pick me up today and she talked to my friends and it was a disaster. She embarrassed me. So it kind of goes both ways, right? But we use this word disaster far too often, I believe. So the question is, what do you consider a disaster in your life? What do you call a disaster? What type of news, when it arrives to your ears, you declare, that's a disaster. That is a disastrous bit of news. In our passage this morning, we're going to see the people of God, the Israelites, receive news that they declare is a disastrous word. And then we're going to be, see the beginnings. We just read uh, about the fulfillment of, uh, of the bad news being rectified, being fixed. Uh, but we're going to see the beginnings of this disaster being fixed. And of course, we will finish with the good news for our current disaster. So as we read together Exodus chapter 33 and 34, see if you can pick up what is the disastrous word, what is the disastrous news, and how we can go about fixing it. Exodus chapter 33, starting in the beginning of the chapter. The Lord said to Moses, Therefore, the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus, the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sights. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he, God, said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he, Moses, said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And Moses and the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken, I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he, the Lord, said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord." I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by." Then I will take my hand away, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The Lord said to Moses, "'Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain.'" No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord... And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. And he said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before you and all your people I will do marvels such as has have not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall worship no other god, for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God." You shall make a covenant you shall make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited you eat of its sacrifice and you take their daughters and your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods you shall make for your you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal you shall keep the feast of unleavened bread Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread "'as I commanded you, "'at the time appointed in the month of Abib. "'For in the month of Abib you came out from Egypt. "'All that open the womb are mine. "'All your male livestock, "'the firstborn of cow and sheep, "'the firstborn of donkey, "'you shall redeem with a lamb. "'Or if you will not redeem it, "'you shall break its neck. "'All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem, "'and none shall appear before me empty-handed.'" Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. No one shall covet your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times a year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until morning. The best of the firstfruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel." So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. When Moses came down from Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put the veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went back to speak with him. So again, the Israelites receive a disastrous word, and then we start to see the beginning of the redemption My proposition for you this morning is that you would seek the presence of God. Seek the presence of God. The passage this morning is going to break up uh, pretty well into four main sections for the four points that point us to the presence of God. We're going to see that the lack of God's presence is disastrous. We're going to see that the appeal for God's presence is according to His character. We're going to see that the requirement for God's presence is exclusive worship. And we're going to see that the way or the means to God's presence is a faithful intercessor. So, first, the lack of God's presence is disastrous. We see in chapter 33, verses 1 through 6. Chapter 33, verses 1 through 6 the lack of God's presence is disastrous. Pick it up with me just in case we missed it. Pick it up with me there at the beginning of, verse, of chapter 33 again, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, the land which I swore to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, saying to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey. Stop there for a second. I want you to notice everything that God is still promising to do for His people. If you were not here last week, we we covered a very staggering passage about the people of God. And what happened in the passage last week, just back in Exodus chapter 32, what happened last week is that Moses was up and he was speaking with God on the mountain. And the people of God grew impatient about what was going on and what was taking Moses so long. And so they approached Aaron and they they said, Look, we, we don't know what's happened to this guy Moses. We're not sure what's taking him so long, but what we need is a God that we can say has brought us out of slavery in Egypt. And so what they did was they gathered up their jewelry, they gathered up their ornaments, and they melted it, and they fashioned it into a calf, and they worshipped it as if it were the God that brought them out of slavery in Egypt, knowing that it was not that calf that brought them out of slavery in Egypt. It was the one true God of the Bible who brought them out of slavery in Egypt. It was a moment of stark and obvious rebellion and idolatry against the one true God. And yet, God here at the beginning of chapter 33 promises... All these things. He says, look, I promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that I'm going to give you this land. I'm still going to give you this land. Oh yeah, there are some people in the land that are going to get in the way. I'm going to send an angel in front of you, and the angel is going to drive out all the people that are in the land. Oh yeah, it's a good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. God promised to fulfill His promises of provision and of peace that He had promised several generations to go to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Lots of good things. Then as the ESV translated, we get the word but. I think it's very appropriate for how this passage goes. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people." The one thing that God was not going to do was that He was not going to go with them. Why would He not go with them? He even tells them why He's not going to be able to go with them. He says, I'm not going to go with you because you are a stiff-necked People. You are a rebellious people. And if God were to come into the presence of an idolatrous, stiff-necked people like Israel in this moment, His wrath would consume them. His wrath would burn them and consume them. And notice what happens in verse 4. Chapter 33, verse 4. When the people heard this, that God wasn't going to go with them, when the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. So let's stop here for a moment and look at ourselves. I want you to imagine that God spoke to you, right? As clearly, like it's pretty clear here, right? God said this, and it's recorded for us. It's translated into our language. But I want you to imagine that God spoke to you, and He said, look, I'm going to give you a good land, I'm going to give you a land, a good land, the best land that you can imagine. I'm going to give you houses that you did not build. I'm going to give you bank accounts that you did not fill. I'm going to give you cars in the driveway that you did not purchase. Oh yeah, if anyone, there are people there who are standing in your way, not a problem. I'm going to send an angel before you to go take care of that. And you're going to occupy these things. Imagine that God said all those things to you. He's going to give you all of those things. The only issue is that He's not going to go with you. The question is, would you be okay with that? Would you be okay with that? Would you take all the stuff, the land, the houses, the cars the peace from enemies, would you take all of the stuff even if God would not be in it? Or, would you instead realize that the lack of God's presence going with you is disastrous news? It is disastrous news. And would you realize why God's presence would not be with you. It's the same reasons that God's presence would not go with the Israelites, that our sin deserves the all-consuming wrath of God. And so the one thing that you need and the one thing that I need, the presence of God, is the very thing that we cannot have because you and I are a stiff-necked, rebellious people. We can also apply this to our life together as a church. Can we not? I mean, the Israelites, the church. So us as a church family, we've recently come into a new building that we did not build, filled with things that we did not put here, by and large. And there was very little opposition into coming in, right? We unlocked the door and we walked in. Very little opposition, relatively speaking, to us coming in. But what if the presence of God left us? What if the presence of God departed us as a congregation? Would we even notice? Would we even notice that God left and that we were just going through the motions, that we were just doing church? We stopped being the church long ago. Would we even notice? There's a passage in Revelation that says that God puts out His lamp amongst churches. And my fear and my observation is that very often the gatherings that call themselves churches don't even notice when it happens. And so will we even notice if God removes His presence from among us? Will we see it as disastrous? See, the reality is that all of us are individually and corporately together. We are in a disastrous situation apart from God doing something. We are a stiff-necked people who have turned our heart to false gods. I haven't seen anybody melt their jewelry together and fashion a calf and worship it. However, we have all turned our hearts We have turned our adoration towards things that are not the one true God of the Bible. We have rebelled against God and the one thing that we need, God Himself will destroy us because of our sin apart from something else happening. One thing we attempt to do every Sunday is to share the good news, the Gospel news. But sometimes we... we Forget the bad news, right? This is the bad news. It's good that this is point one and not like the end of the sermon, right? Hang out with me. We'll get to the good news. But just understand, good news isn't good unless it's across the backdrop of reality. And the reality that exists for each one of us is that God, if He were to come into our presence, just us, sinful old us, would consume us in His wrath, and if He is a good God, He is right to do so. So we need help in this disastrous situation. Now the question, the next question is very important. Very important. Okay, So we need help. We're in a disastrous situation. We desperately need help. Where you turn for help is very important. Where you turn for help is very important. Secondly, in verse uh, in chapter 33 verse 7, chapter 33 verse 7. Through chapter 34 verse 9, we see this. The appeal for God's presence must be according to God's character. The appeal for God's presence must be according to God's character. Okay? So think back to the Israelites, think back to our passage this morning. They could not go to God on the basis of their character, right? So imagine if the Israelites say, hey, we're, you called a stiff neck God. I think that was a little severe. We're really not that bad, right? If they started down that path, I don't think it would have gone well. They know enough to not go down that path. And Moses, going before the Lord on behalf of the people, knows enough to not go down that path. He does not appeal to God on the basis of the Israelites' character. Instead, what he does is he goes to God and appeals to God on the basis of God's character. Moses appeals to God's character. He appeals to the people being God's people. And he asked for God's favor, His unmerited favor, His unmerited grace, His unmerited blessing upon them. He says, and he does so by appealing to God's character. So pick it up with me in chapter 33 in verse 14. So, Moses has appealed to God and he says, look, aren't we your people? Aren't I your guy? You know me by name. I have favor. That word favor is kind of like the New Testament word grace. It's unmerited. It's just something that God bestows on, him, on us because of his character. He's like, look, God, haven't I found favor in your sight? Don't you know me? Aren't I your guy? And aren't this your people? And in verse 14, God says, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses just can't help himself, right? In verse 15, he says, All right, God. But listen, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Look, if your presence isn't gonna go with us, I don't want to go. Do you say, do we say that to God? right like this next phase of life wherever you like wherever you're calling me to go if you're not going with me I don't want to go right that's back to the first point but we're good so he appeals to God's care look you've shown favor on us aren't we your people the only thing that makes us distinct he says in verse 16 he says look is not your going with us The thing that makes us distinct, isn't that what makes us different is that we're your people? It's not that we're awesome. It's just that you're our God and that's what makes us distinct from the nations. And so, then in verse 18, Moses again says, "'Look, show me your glory.'" Previously, he said, I want to know you so that I can get more favor, so I can find more favor. I want to know who you are, Lord, and I want to see your glory. And then God just does just that. He gives Moses a glimpse of his glory. And when, Mo- when the Lord passes by Moses and he shows him a glimpse of his glory, the Lord doesn't say, oh, my people are awesome. No, the Lord declares who he is. And so look down in verse thirty-four or chapter 34. Chapter 34 and verse 6. Chapter 34 and verse 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving their iniquity and transgression and sin but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped, and he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go into the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity, and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. We cannot mess this up. Moses says, God, I, I know who you are. I want to know more of you. I believe I found favor in your sight. You've just declared to me that You're merciful, that You are gracious, You are abounding in steadfast love, You are faithful to Your Word, You keep steadfast love. I want You to come into our midst and instead of destroying us, I want You to pardon us. Instead of destroying us, I want You to forgive our trespasses and our iniquities and our sin. Do not mess this up. There is an ugly horrible vein that is running through what is called Christianity in America today and it would show up and say hey, I know those, those crazy preachers they're going to say you're stiff necked and rebellious you're not stiff necked and rebellious you're really not that bad God loves you anyway that is, a, that is not the teaching of the scriptures it's not, not what it says it says no you are You are stiff-necked, you are rebellious, you are idolatrous. That's the bad news. The good news is that God is gracious and compassionate and can forgive the sins of a stiff-necked, rebellious people. Like, how big God is, not, oh, you're not that bad. No, you are that bad. You desperately need saving. And I'm with you. I don't know why we're up on a platform here, but I'm with you. I'm that bad as well. We desperately need saving. Appeal to God on the basis of His character. He is a gracious God. He is full of mercy. He is slow to anger. He is abounding in steadfast love. He can forgive your sins and He can pardon your iniquities. There is just one requirement. In chapter 34, verses 10 through 28, chapter 34, verses 10 through 28, the requirement for God's presence is exclusive worship. The requirement for God's presence is exclusive worship. Okay? There are, we got some more rules. If you if you're just like excited for rules, if you just like read Psalm one nineteen all day long, and you love rules, you have loved our study of the Book of Exodus. There's been lots of rules, and I will tell you there are a lot of rules in the rest of the Bible as well. But let me boil it all down for you: either the one true God of the Bible is God, or He's not. All the rules come down to that: either God is God or He's not. Either God is to be worshipped as God, or something else is to be worshipped as God. So just scan through this section, 34, 10 through 28. God says, I'm going to make a covenant before all your people. Verse 11, He says, Observe what I command you this day. Look, just do what I say. And He gives some promises of what He's going to do. And notice what he says in verse 13: You shall tear down their altars to their false gods, you shall break their pillars to their false gods, you shall cut down their asherim to their false gods. Why? So that you will worship no other God except for the one true God of the Bible, Yahweh. And he goes on. Verse 17: You shall make for yourself, you shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal. Verse 18, you shall keep the feast that I command to you, should do what I say. Verse 21, he talks about the Sabbath. It's amazing to me how often the Sabbath comes up in the scriptures. 6 days you shall work, but on the 7th day you shall rest. Doesn't matter if it's a sowing time, a plowing time, a harvest time, it's really busy, it's not really busy, you need to rest and realize that God is sovereign, and that God is in control, and you can actually take a day off. He says in verse 25, 23, 24, 25, he says a couple different ways, look, bring me the first fruits bring me the most important don't mingle my sacrifice with other things don't allow things to linger bring to me the most important prioritize worship of god the requirement for god's presence is exclusive worship to worship god as god 4th section verse uh, chapter 34 Chapter 34, verses 29 through 35. 34, 29 through 35. The means or the way to get God's presence is through a faithful intercessor. The way or the means to get God's presence is through a faithful intercessor. Moses interceded for the people so he went into the presence of God and he interacted with God and he made his plea before God we saw that earlier and then we see that at the end of our passage Moses intercedes for the people and the people draw near to Moses now they need Moses to intercede they cannot go to the presence of God but Moses is able to intercede with them they they are even hesitant to come near to Moses. They need a veil over his face because of what he has. And again, we read a New Testament accounting of this as well. You see, what we see here is that Moses was a suitable uh, intercessor. He was a suitable go-between the people and God for this limited period of time, for this temporary period of time in Jewish history. But if you keep on reading, you'll learn that Moses has his own issues. If you were to read previously and then you keep on reading, Moses has his previous issues. At at some point, uh, I believe in Numbers, uh, Moses disobeys God, shows lack of faith in God, and he actually does not lead God's people into the promised land. Joshua does. So Moses was a suitable intercessor for a very limited period of time, a very temporary period of time for uh, Jews and for the Israelites in this time. So as great as Moses was, and Moses is a fascinating character that we've been studying and could continue to study throughout the first five books of the Bible, really the second through fifth book of the Bible, we see Moses. Fascinating character. But as great as Moses was, we need a greater Moses. You see, Jesus was the ultimate intercessor on behalf of His people. Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25 says this of Jesus Consequently, He, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him since He always lives to make intercession for them. So Jesus is able to intercede to God for all who will draw near to God through Christ. Jesus is our great intercessor. And you're like, okay, well, He's not here bodily. What, what happens? Well, He's at the right hand of God the Father, and He has sent us His Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8 tells us, at the end of Romans 8, He tells us that Jesus has sent to us His Holy Spirit, and that His Spirit always intercedes on our behalf praying when we don't know what to pray anybody ever not know what to pray for a situation yes the spirit intercedes on our behalf and prays perfectly according to the will of God the Father and Jesus is there pleading at the right hand of God the Father that's we could talk about that for a few more hours if we desired fascinating concept we will sing a song about that later Interesting concept at the beginning of uh, a little book in the New Testament, 1 Timothy. At the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says that we Christians should be intercessors for others, right? That we should intercede, that we should go to God on behalf of others. So there are people who do not yet know the one true God of the Bible. And they do not yet know that they can draw near to Christ. They can draw near to God through Christ. They don't yet know that, and so they need us to intercede to God on their behalf and to welcome them to Christ who will welcome them to God. So we are given a ministry of intercession as well. So I have a few questions for us this morning as we think on this passage as Stephen said, we are instructed in the Scriptures that we should read the Scriptures aloud, which we have done, that someone should give the sense of the passage, which I pray that I have done, and that we should be changed and transformed in the going away, not that we should just stop and check a box for the week. So as you think about this, when you leave here, a few questions for us. Number one, three questions. Three questions. Number one, how do you need to reprioritize your life? How do you need to reprioritize your life? So it may just be you need to like use the word disaster a little bit differently as you move forward, right? So, like instead of calling a messy room a disaster, or instead of calling embarrassment from a parent a disaster, or instead of something else, use that word disaster really clearly, look and, and say, and that's a good memory verse where where Moses says, Look, if you're not going with us, I don't want to go. The the thing I need first and foremost in my life is to know and love the one true God of the Bible. So what do you need to do to reprioritize your life? Maybe you need to respond with this reprioritization for the first time. Maybe you need to honor God as God for the first time. The way the, the public declaration of, that's me, I want to draw near to God through the person and work of Jesus Christ. The public way that we do that is through baptism. Okay, so you may say, man, I need to do that. I need to repent from my sins and trust in God for the first time through baptism. Or maybe you're already a Christian, you've been baptized, you're maybe even a member of the church, but you need to make some real changes in how you spend your time, energy, or effort. How does your prioritization need to reflect your uh, ultimate priority of putting God first? So number one, how do you need to reprioritize your life? Number two, whose character will you lean on for things to change in your life? Maybe I should have asked this at the very beginning of the sermon, right? Like, who wants something to change in their life, right? A hundred percent of your hands would go up. Everybody wants something to change in their life. All right, we're in political season because we're always in political season. Right? No candidate is running on the everything's okay platform. Right, There's no candidate that's going to come out and put out a uh, television ad or a radio ad or blast your Facebook account or whatever and say, everything's okay, elect me and I'll keep everything okay. Nobody's running on that platform. We all believe that things need to change. The question is, whose character will you lean on for things to change in your life? Will it be your character? God, I think I'm pretty awesome and so I deserve some stuff to start coming my way. That would be wrong. Instead, God, I want to know more of you. God, I want to see more of your glory. Whose character will you lean on for things to change in your life? Third question, who do you need to intercede for? Who is one person that you need to be regularly and consistently praying for and reaching out to with the love of Christ? Who is it that you need to intercede for? Brothers and sisters, seek the presence of God for yourself and seek the presence of God for those around you. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, we need more of you. Once we have come into church, a church gathering a couple times, it is so easy for us to go through the motions. God, would you keep us from that? God, would you help us to adopt that mindset that if you're not going with us, we don't want to go. And if you are with us, we can go anywhere. God, we need your presence. We need you to pardon our sins on the basis of your goodness, your character, not our own. And we need the perfect intercessor in Jesus Christ to count for us. God, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.